Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Vern Poitras entitled Inerrancy, New Testament Perspectives, from the series The Trinity and Inerrancy. Listen to the whole series now on Canon Plus. The New Testament in its several several of its books and in several ways indicates that the climactic salvation promised and anticipated in the Old Testament has come in Christ. Christ comes in fulfillment of the promises of God and accomplishes a salvation that only God can accomplish. This salvation is actually received, appropriated, and enjoyed by the Christians addressed in the New Testament. Even at times when the New Testament does not elaborate on the nature of God's work, it presupposes an underlying Trinitarian structure. The plan of God the Father is executed in time by God the Son in his incarnation, Ephesians 1, and applied to believers through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, same chapter. In terms of this underlying structure, the Trinity is pervasive in the New Testament. God's communication to us is one aspect of his saving work, and I'm going to then focus on that particular aspect. And so we should not be surprised to find that a similar Trinitarian structure underlies divine communication. Verbal communication from God ultimately means communication originating with God the Father, spoken in the context of the Son as the Word of God, conveyed by the Spirit of God, and interpreted in our hearts through the presence of the Holy Spirit. We can see this structure in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation declares itself to be the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. The message originates with God, that is God the Father, who gives it to Jesus Christ. The introductory verse describes the whole of the book of Revelation, but the role of Jesus Christ becomes particularly vivid and prominent in Revelation 2 and 3. He speaks to the churches. Each of the seven messages begins with the expression, the words of, followed by a description identifying Christ as the one who speaks the words. Then near the close of each message, we have the refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Christ says is also what the Spirit says. And the refrain coheres with other New Testament passages that indicate indicate that having an ear and hearing depends preeminently on the spirit. For example, John 3 in the famous passage about being born again. It is the spirit who opens ears by his presence, bringing the power of God to bear not only on ears, but on hearts. Thus, in Acts, when Lydia hears the apostolic message, quote, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, Acts 16, 14. If we collect verses from other places in the New Testament, we can see that a similar pattern is affirmed beyond the, the book of Revelation. Second Timothy three sixteen declares that all scripture is breathed out by God and the name God suggests that we should think preeminently of God the Father, the word Theopneustos, that is translated breathed out by God, refers to God's breath, 
which hints at the role of the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 37. Second Peter 1, 21 also shows us the role of the Spirit in addition to the Father. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 indicates the centrality of the Son in the divine speech in the New Testament. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. There's much material in the New Testament on which to reflect. Rather than conduct a survey of all this material, I would like to focus mainly on one passage that is especially revealing, namely John 17, 6 to 8. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. This passage does not focus on teaching inerrancy, but it has implications. Let us briefly focus on this passage in its richness, and then, as space allows, move gradually to explore whether there are implications for inerrancy. The passage speaks explicitly about the role of the Father and of the Son in giving the words to the disciples. It does not mention the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned explicitly anywhere in John 17. But of course, John 17 comes in the context of the earlier teaching about the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16. The Holy Spirit has a key role in teaching the disciples, John 14, 26, John 16, 13, 15, among the passages. In this work, the Holy Spirit uses the words of Christ. John 14, 26 mentions, quote, all that I have said to you. And John 16, 14 indicates that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. When we return to John 17, in the light of these earlier chapters, we notice also the language of indwelling, I in them and you in me, verse 23, verse 21 as well. This language of indwelling builds on John 14, which indicates that the Father and the Son will come to make our home within through the Holy Spirit who will be in you. In the light of the connection that John 17, 23 has with John 14, we infer that the Holy Spirit is instrumental in this indwelling of the Father Son. The indwelling produces unity among believers, John 17, 21, 23. At the same time, the unity is a product of the revelation of the Father's glory given to Christ and then to the disciples, verse 22. This glory is closely connected to the manifestation of God's name, verse 6, 26. For the connection of name and glory, note the background in Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, And the name is a condensation of the message that Christ has revealing the Father. Thus, given the context in which John 17 appears, the work of the Holy Spirit in guiding and in teaching the disciples Christ's words is presupposed. So what relevance does John 17, 6 to 8, and the work of the Holy Spirit have for inerrancy? There are several directions in which to explore implications. Let us start with the structure of transmission that John 17, 
6 to 8 unfolds. The father gives words to the son, and the son passes those words to the disciples. The first stage of transmission for the words lies with the father. The words are the father's words. He transmits them to the son. The second stage of the transmission involves the son's activity. He transmits the words to the disciples. When we fill in the picture more fully using John 16, we may include the Holy Spirit. According to John 16, the Spirit hears what the Father and the Son speak. I put it that way because according to the principle that the Father indwells the Son, the Father speaks when the Son speaks. So the Son's words are also the speech of the Father. The Holy Spirit in in turn speaks what he has heard, and this speech impacts the disciples. We clearly have a divine communication involving all three persons of the Trinity in their distinctive roles. The process does not end there because John 17:20 includes another stage. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. The verse includes two groups of disciples, namely the ones denominated these only. And second, those who believe in me through their word, this verse indicates that in the preceding part of John 17, Jesus has had in view especially the immediate group of disciples, preeminently the 12 apostles. They have heard Jesus' words directly. In John 17, 20 then, later, Jesus indicates that what they have heard is supposed to be passed on. Their word, the word of the apostles, goes out to others, many of whom have not Uh, directly heard the words of Jesus while he was on earth. So we find the following sequence of transmission from the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the Apostles and then to those who believe. We can see a similar sequence in the book of Revelation according to Revelation 1. It's Father to Son to his angels to John to the servants, that is, believers generally. In the case of Revelation, we know from Revelation 2, 7 in the parallel verses that the Holy Spirit speaks to the churches through John. So the Spirit is there to transmit, presumably at more than one stage. The presence of the Spirit reminds us that these sequences are a simplification. That is, if you think of them just as pure uh, linear, uh, because the Father and the Son indwell the message of the Spirit. Through the indwelling of the Spirit, the Father and the Son dwell in believers, not only in the apostles. In the words the believers receive, this Father and the Son and the Spirit are present rather than being remote. The words from the apostles are the word of God, not merely, quote, their word, as if it meant only the word of men. We can see this implication from John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is necessary not only for the apostles, but for believers in general. How will they be sanctified except through the key means, means, the truth, which is given in your word? The implication then is that believers in general, those included in the larger group in verse 20, are recipients of your word, that is the word of God. One lesson to draw from these truths is that the doctrine of inerrancy fits within a larger context concerning divine communication, and that this communication has Trinitarian structure. Anti-inerrantists regularly accuse inerrantists of having an oversimple view of divine revelation. Supposedly, 
inerrantists leave out the illuminating work of the Spirit or the centrality of the Son in Revelation. These accusations tend to be unfair. They do not notice the difference between an inerrantist who actually denies illumination or the centrality of the Son, and I know no such people, but they're accused of doing it. There's a difference between an actual denial and an inerrantist who fails to mention these elements because he is focusing on the question at hand, namely inerrancy itself. However, given the regularity of the accusations, it is wise for inerrantists to remind people of the broader Trinitarian context. The sequence in transmitting the word of God naturally has a close relation to the question of truth, as John 17, 17, and 19 indicate. The truth is important to the practical value and function of the word of God, and God is a God of truth. The doctrine of inerrancy in summary form says that God consistently speaks truth, that error is opposite to truth, and that therefore what God speaks has no errors. It also maintains that the Bible is the word of God. It is what God speaks. The issue becomes more complex because we can observe that the word of God can come to people even through partially reliable channels. We have the word of God in translation, and we have preachers. John 17 does not get into the details of this transmission to later stages, but the last stage that does mention the stage of those who believe in me through their word potentially includes an extended time involving translation, copying, and various other forms of transmission down through the generations. When an individual receives the word of God and digests it through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the spirit is infallible, but the believing human reception is not. These matters are also regularly used by anti-inerrantists. Typically, they say that for us to single out the apostles or prophets or autographic manuscripts is artificial since, they allege, all that matters in the end is a more or less faithful appropriation of the truth at the end of the transmission, namely with believing reception. The Gospel of John does not directly address these details. We need a more complex set of arguments, and we need to attend to passages like Exodus 31.18 and Deuteronomy 31 to form a doctrine of canon. The canon is a permanent covenantal deposit in written form. But there is still a lesson here. We who are inerrantists need from time to time to acknowledge the existence of the later stages of fallible transmission, and we need to affirm the presence of the Word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit with his work of illumination at these stages. Given the multiple stages in which divine communication unfolds, the obvious question for inerrancy is how far infallibility extends. Anti-inerrantists sometimes ask why, if God is so concerned about inerrant communication, he did not extend inerrancy to inerrant, inerrant copying and inerrant translation. But inerrantists, in reply, are right to point out that it is logically logical for infallibility to end somewhere. Neither copying nor translation is an absolute endpoint, since God intends that the message should be received and digested by ordinary believers. 
the law is supposed to be written, written on their heart. If God is not pleased to make every individual interpreter of the Bible infallible, neither is he obliged to make translators and copyists infallible. The New Testament itself explicitly recognizes the possibility, even the reality of corruption, when it speaks about false teachers. These false teachers are people who claim to be representing some kind of authentic word of God, but who corrupt the truth. It is not a big step to conclude that in principle, false teachers could try to engage in copying and translation. So the natural inference would be that there arises the possibility of corruption at these stages. Copying and translation are authentically the word of God when they say what the original says. So the mantle of infallibility does not extend to every interpreter, nor does it extend to every teacher or translator. It does extend to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It extends, in fact, to the Spirit's activity in guiding and illuminating ordinary believers. All the Spirit's activity is the activity of God himself and is by nature incapable of failing to conform to the Spirit who is the Spirit of truth. However, the response in human consciousness is not infallible. The problem is that we have not been given the capacity capability infallibly to discern the distinction between the products of illumination and the products of our imaginations and their sinful inclinations. We can only say that in the case of the saving work in the, of spirit in illumination, the truth is received and faith engendered. The reception takes place in the midst of remaining indwelling sin. The doctor of inerrancy does not focus on this illuminating work of the spirit, but on the inspiration of the apostles and the prophets and their writings. This is the stage represented by the apostles giving a message to others. Taken in isolation, which is somewhat artificial, John 17, 6 to 8 does not appear to give us a full answer concerning the infallibility of the apostolic message. It does, however, Gives us, give us a picture that undermines some standard arguments from anti-inerrancy advocates. For example, one form of anti-inerrancy position maintains that God, quote, inspired the apostles and prophets by giving them ideas, but not words. According to this view, which I regard as false, okay, according to this view, The ideas are given by God, but God left the apostles to their own devices to find words to clothe and communicate the ideas. This theory gets in trouble with John 17, 8, because Jesus talks about the words, not merely ideas. If this argument fails, anti-inerrantists might regress to another argument, namely that the communication from the incarnate Christ in John 17 and elsewhere in the Gospels, is a special case. Though the apostles did receive words from God at that time, at all other times they were on their own as to what words and discourses they craft to communicate the Gospel as best they can. Now, again, I'm representing arguments of opponents, right? Not what I believe. And the trouble with this theory is that John 17 as a whole makes the communication from Jesus to the apostles central to the whole program of redemption. It is through those words 
and the effects that they have on the apostles, that the apostles are prepared and the believers made one and see Christ's glory. It is natural to see Christ's communication in John 17 as a kind of central exemplar, a key instance that by its centrality defines all other instances of divine communication. Hebrews 1, 1 1-2 makes a similar point by saying that God's communication in the Son is the climax to which Old Testament prophetic speech pointed and for which it prepared. Moreover, as we have seen, Revelation 1, 1 1-2 indicates that a similar divine originating process takes place in the composition of the book of Revelation. Another route explored by anti-inerrantists is to question the adequacy of human language to communicate truth, especially postmodernists. In their minds, they draw a firm line between God, who is the creator above us, and all human beings. They allege that inerrancy comes to an end once a message gets to any human being, including an apostle. Allegedly, finite minds and finite language can never be infallible in communication. This attack on inerrancy has two prongs. The more recent one, prominent in postmodern thought, is skepticism about meanings in language. This theory runs into trouble with John 17, 8, because in that verse, the first two stages in transmission from the Father to the Son and from the Son to his disciples both involve verbal communication. Jesus speaks the words. He refers to the words that you gave me and claims that these are the same words that he has given them. Now, Christ has a human nature and speaks to the disciples in words that are humanly intelligible, but he also has a divine nature. The words that he gives are not merely human, but also divine. If we doubt this, we only have to remember that the words originated with God the Father, who has a divine nature, but not a human nature. So there is no question that the Father's words have divine authority, power, and truth. Some anti-inerrantists might want to evade this conclusion with respect to the incarnate Son by using a canonic view of the incarnation. But this route is barred not only by the heterodox character of canonic theory, we will forego a long discussion of that, but by the fact that in John 17, the origin from the Father is incompatible with a canonic theory that would empty the words of divinity by appeal to an alleged laying aside of divinity due to the incarnation. The words are the words of the Father, not merely of the Son. In addition, the words in question are efficacious. Jesus understands the words. The Holy Spirit, who has been introduced in John 16, understands what belongs to the Father and Son. And the disciples actually receive the words and undergo monumental spiritual change under their influence. They have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Lest the anti-inerrantists still believe that the words from the Father have a paltry content, we may look more closely at John 16, which is the key passage indicating the role of the Holy Spirit in the conveyance of the truth. This latter passage speaks of, quote, all that the Father has, which is also what the Son has. So the origin of communication to the disciples lies in the divine fullness of communion in which the Father and Son share all that the Father has. We cannot reduce the content to a merely finite human sharing. A second route taken by anti-inerrantists is to put a wedge between propositional truth and personal encounter. It is alleged 
that divine revelation is always and only personal encounter without propositions. Inertists are accused of reducing the richness of union with God to lifeless propositions. Yes, inerrantists typically emphasize propositional revelation. That emphasis is natural because verbal meaning is what is being attacked. By itself, their choice of emphasis does not imply that they excise other dimensions of fellowship with God. In fact, the anti-inerrantist theory of wordless personal encounter does not fare well when we come to John 17, 6 to 8 to begin with. Let us observe that the word propositional, though useful, is not altogether satisfactory. In some uses, it may mean that a communication contains meaning claims and statements that make it claim concerning the truth. We certainly want to say that the Bible and Jesus' words contain such claims. But the same word propositional can, for some people, connote a kind of isolated, idealized form of meaning independent of any particular embodiment in language, such as might be desired in the context of a limited system of formal logic. Needless to say, the latter sense of the word propositional is not what we need. The communication in John 17, 6 to 8, is rich and personal. It is also meaningful. It communicates truth. So it refused to separate, and John 17 refuses to separate, meaning and personal knowledge. Do we need to polarize between knowing persons, knowing truth, and knowing how to live? That is wisdom. Hardly. John 17 contains all three in intimate union. In verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This verse focuses on personal knowledge of the person of God the Father and the person of God the Son. This knowledge is given to disciples according to verses 7 and 8. But in these verses, the knowledge of the Father and the Son is closely tied to knowledge of particular truths introduced by that, Greek pati. We hear, quote, that that everything that you have given me is from you, verse 7, that I came from you and that you sent me, verse 8. The disciples grasp particular meanings expressed in verbal communication. And then they also know wisdom, the wisdom of how to live. The word wisdom is not used, but is implied by the language of eternal life, verse 3, and the language that they have kept your word, verse 6. All three aspects, personal knowledge, knowledge of particular meaningful truths, and skill in living come together. All three are received simultaneously through the personal, meaningful, life-giving words from the Father, through the Son, to the disciples, uh, given in the power of the Holy Spirit. We may, if we wish, have three labels for the three intertwined aspects. First, the personal dimension of Jesus' communication can be described as personal presence. He himself, as a person, and person of the Father as well, and the Spirit, is present, in the midst of the words he speaks, this union of personal presence and speech is characteristic of human face-to-face communication. We are simultaneously aware of the person and the speech. The speech reveals the person, and the person expresses his concerns in meanings in the speech. Second, the meaning dimension can be described simply as meaning that is expressed. 
Third, the wisdom dimension, the skill in living, can be described as a manifestation of control. First of all, God, through the Holy Spirit, exerts power that transforms the disciples. Second, the disciples themselves gain ability to live, which involves a controlling skill directed to their bodies and their environment. These three aspects are not separable, but three ways of looking at the entire communication. The meanings exert control on the disciples' thinking and their view of Jesus and the Father. The meanings express the personal presence of Jesus. Jesus manifests his personal presence in meaning and in control. These three aspects are a reformulation of John Frame's triad of perspectives on lordship, except that he has the three labels, presence, authority, and control, usually in another order. Uh, and I have substituted meaning for authority because in verbal communication, it is primarily through meanings that the speaker undertakes to exert authority with respect to those who hear. From the standpoint of the doctrine of the Trinity, the interesting thing here about Frame's triad is that it is derived from the Trinity. When God exercises his lordship, he manifests the authority of the Father through the executive control of the Son in the presence of the Holy Spirit, pulling apart presence and meanings, as some anti-inerrantists propose with the personal encounter <laughs> separated from meanings. Uh, pulling those apart results in tension not only with the particular details of John 17, but also with the underlying unity of divine communication based on intra-Trinitarian harmony, coherence. Finally, I'm out of time. <laughs> uh, but finally, um, uh, let me talk briefly about the anti-inerrantist strategy of depreciating the status of the written word of God by emphasizing the priority of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. The written word allegedly, allegedly has revelatory significance only as a fallible witness to the incarnate word. But again, this polarity fights against the way that John 17, 6, 8 functions in its environment. To begin with, the introduction of the eternal word in John 1, 1, occurs in the context of the allusions to Genesis 1. God the Son is the eternal word, always exists, uh, but he is also active in creation. All things were made through him, John 1, 3. Thematically, the word in John 1, 1 is connected to plural words of God's commands in Genesis 1, such as the command, let there be light. As Psalm 33, 6 summarizes it, it, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hopes. We infer that the particular words of the Lord in Genesis 1 have their deepest foundation in the eternal word whom they express. John 1 stands at the beginning of the Gospel of John in anticipation of the fact that the word who was mediator of creation becomes incarnate and mediator of redemption. He brings redemption partly by speaking. He has much to say. The opening in John 1, 1, therefore, gives further weight to the discourses of Christ. Again, see, no tension between affirming the centrality of Christ as the incarnate word and the words that Christ speaks and, of course, then conveys the gospel. Okay. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full series, The Trinity and Inerrancy. Now available on Canon Plus.